Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is my great friend and colleague, Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition. Danny has a degree in biology and physics, as well as a master's in nutritional science, and is one of the top nutrition, health, wellness, and performance educators online today. His podcast, Sigma Nutrition, is one of the top nutrition and performance podcasts available to everyone for free through iTunes, Stitcher, and other Android applications. On this episode, Danny and I discussed many topics, including Danny's background and influences, Danny's nutritional principles, Danny's advice on how to think more critically about information, Danny's top resources, and Danny's upcoming 2016 Sigma Nutrition two-day seminar on April 9th and 10th at UCD Belfield, Dublin. This was a top-class episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Mr. Danny Lennon, it's an absolute pleasure and, a, and an honor to have you on my podcast. It's hard to believe that this is actually your first time being on here as a guest, but uh, thanks so much for making the time this morning, Danny. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Good to be here. Um, I'm fairly sure, like, I'd say most of the people that listen to my podcast more than likely listen to your podcast because ever since you've come out with Sigma Nutrition, I'm always talking about some sort of an episode from your show. I'm always like, you know, on Danny Lennon's podcast, he did this. So I, I'd assume that a lot of the listeners to my podcast are subscribed to yourself so um but anyway g- given that let's just dive a little bit into your background because may- maybe because too you're always the host and you know rarely are you actually at the other end of the of the microphone if you like as the guest give the listeners your background there danny yeah so I'll, I'll try and keep it fairly brief not to bore people but essentially i think the important things that, that i usually talk about is this kind of cross-section of two of my main interests which was always sports or, or training in the gym kind of growing up and then once I went off to college and I was studying science so I, was, I started to do physics and biology at the University of Limerick um, and so around that time uh, I first became aware of how to look at peer-reviewed research and how to maybe read a paper um, but also just for my own interests outside of how to improve my own performance I started looking at things well how does this apply in affecting athletic performance uh, or how does it affect health and then it led me into this kind of rabbit hole of nutrition which is the one thing that kind of really fascinated me at first and so I started becoming just really fascinated by anything to do with nutrition and the, the little nitty gritty details around the science of it and uh, so just kept that as a, a major I suppose hobby for a while of looking into this stuff in a bit of detail um, and, and so once I finished college became a uh, teacher, um, so was doing physics and biology, like I said, for a year. Um, but during that time, I just knew that there was something more that I wanted to be doing with this nutrition piece, and decided to, to quit the teaching, went back and did a master's in nutritional science, um, and then from there, I was trying to just learn as much as possible. So like reading textbooks, going to seminars, attending courses, um, trying to write stuff to get my own thoughts more concise, and, and then from there, kind of, the, uh, the website was eventually born, and then the podcast. Um, so, for, for people who don't know, the podcast is essentially just me trying to give people access to really high-level, world-class people that have solid information, and just exposing them to that, those ideas. 
and just allowing people then to go and investigate a bit more or to take one or two like nuggets of wisdom from these people and, and see how that applies to themselves um, as opposed to trying to tell people what they should be doing. And I think that's the kind of biggest thing. It's just around education. And so uh, Sigma Nutrition, as it stands now, is currently mainly focused on trying to just provide really good quality educational material for people. Um, and then uh, as kind of sub-branch for that is uh, their own coaching I, I do with people as well. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at now. And uh, so like I said, it's, it's all kind of stemmed from those two main interests in in performance and uh, science. Great stuff. And uh, just with your teaching, uh, were you teaching at a, a secondary school, physics and chemistry? Yeah, I was teaching uh, here in Limerick in, in Castle Troy College. Wow. So I was teaching uh, physics, biology and maths. Um, and so, yeah, that was uh, straight into the fire. That was uh, on full hours that year. Um, so I had some really good students there as well, which um, it's actually a really, really good school. Um, and I actually love the teaching aspect of it. I, like, I love um, the actual being in a classroom, talking through stuff with people, presenting on different ideas. But it was just the there was something else I need to be doing as opposed to in that kind of system. Yeah. And so that's what kind of led me to leave it. Pretty, uh, pretty brave move, like just only after one year of, of a secure job. I mean... Uh... Like what? What was your? What was your? Like what was going through your mind when you were making that decision? I suppose uh, probably a couple of things. I mean, um, I was reading a lot of books at the time, and then one day I think I, I came across uh, Tim Ferriss's book for a work week, yeah. and it wasn't so much the stuff around setting up a, a startup business or any of the tech stuff in there. It was more so the first like two to three chapters of that book talks about uh, just how to view certain things in life um, and a few of those things kind of stuck with me of uh, trying to create something that I wanted to be doing for a long period of time or something that I'd get excited by yeah. and I, I knew that this like something in this direction of I could do something here with nutrition I, I knew what I could uh, that I could help people in some way and I knew that I just wanted to learn more about it so I just I was just fascinated by learning more and I think I suppose of a thing that often pops up with me is when I do get fascinated by something or interested in it, I tend to just go all in for it as opposed to just to dabble in it um, and just go 100% of that thing for at least a short period of time and then I can move on to something else. And that tends to be the case with this thing. It's like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to go all in for this and uh, try and try and make this thing work. So it, was, it had to be no plan B, let me just... Uh, Go for go and do this, um, and and so it was probably just a, a number of things at that time of deciding. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna just go for it. Yeah, no, it's just it's just so rare. I suppose you you see too. It's it's so rare that that people do that nowadays. You know, again, you you know, you just out of college. You know, people probably in your life probably thought you were a bit mad to do that. Really, like you know, after one year of teaching, just to say, fucking, I want to go back and do a master's nutrition. It's, it's what I want to do, but. That's yeah, yeah. I think for maybe my parents more so yeah. than anyone else. Yeah. Um, but again, they were just coming at it from uh, a different mindset to, than I was at the time. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Um, and just viewing it as like thinking that having this secure job and uh, regular money coming in is like the goal. Whereas for me, like the goal of what I was going to do each day wasn't that. Uh, the goal was what something that 
I'm really excited about um, and and what am I going to be able to do for a long time that gets me up every day and think this is this amazing I'm actually doing it so it was just the, the lens through which we were probably viewing stuff like that um, and that was one of the things that was in uh, Ferris's book actually of how when people try and chase happiness it's kind of this abstract idea because it's hard to know what decisions make you happy or will make you happy into the future or even what that sensation is so it's easier to look at actions um, and do things that will make you excited as opposed to chase things that make you happy because it's, it's a much more tangible and easy for someone to, to realize if this thing will make me excited or will it not um, and so once I had that mind frame then I was like okay let me do something that even if it doesn't come off is at least exciting to at least go and try and do yeah. and uh, so that's how it led me that way great stuff so Danny a question I, I always ask my guests because it's just it's, it's again more to you know understand kind of the character of the person I'm interviewing so question is who would you say has been the biggest influences on you in your life so far um just uh, from a general viewpoint, definitely uh, and, oh, my parents. Yeah. Um, without a doubt, I uh, just think, uh, I think I suppose the same bias that everyone has, but I think I have the, the greatest parents in the world. I just, um, just, they just, the, the biggest thing with them, I think, is that it's nothing that I can point to that they ever specifically told me how to be or how to act or, or how to do anything. It's just looking at how they act in their day-to-day -day life, how they treat people, um, how they talk about people, um, how they just carry themselves and kind of very selfless people. Um, and just just looking at that, I think that has just rubbed off on me. And like in a much smaller way, I don't think I'm anywhere near as good a person as, as either of them. But without doubt, they're the two biggest influences on my life. Um, well, a question. Then, then if it's if it's more on the professional side of things, then there's a number of different people. But I think over time it kind of changes, uh, and you kind of pick up different bits and pieces and, and start to form stuff together. Um, and then really it becomes your peer group of who you end up spending most time with. And I think people have heard that over and over and over again. That really who you spend most time with, or whose ideas and concepts you surround yourself with, mm. that's the stuff that starts to formulate. Um, and essentially become your default operating system almost. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Tim Ferriss and he says you're, you become the you become the window of the five people you spend most of your time with. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like, uh, Jim Rohn used to have a similar quote as well. You're, you're the average of the, the five people you spend most of your time with. I yeah. think it was Jim Rohn, but it's, it's, I mean, it's a very similar concept that everyone has seen. Um, people will know this intuitively of when they've spent different periods of their time in different situations or just exposing themselves to different ideas. I mean, that look, when we have now with the way the internet is, we can ex expose ourselves to different peer groups that we're not ever in physical contact with. Yeah. Um, and we can surround ourselves with certain ideas. Um, and in a way, it's it's really good. Um, but in another way, it, it can work against us sometimes in that you're almost self-selecting the ideas you make yourself available to. Yeah. So um, it's just something to be wary of. But uh, yeah, definitely... Those, those are the kind of key things of who you surround yourself with most definitely is the biggest impact yeah and like you mentioned there like with the internet it's, it's such a double edged sword because obviously you can 
you know you can be influenced by um, sources of information that that are actually are you know how to put this they, they actually are genuine and then you can also be influenced by sources of information that are just like more dogma and if you go down that route you can just be sort of you know brainwashed into a way of thinking so it is that yeah. double-edged sort of always realizing that you need to think for yourself and be your own person and, and not allow yourself to kind of be skewed or led one way by one particular uh idea or thought process or kind of 100 percent. i mean yeah. just recently on on uh, one of my podcasts with uh, ben escrow we were kind of talking around a lot of those ideas and uh talking that this idea of critical thinking yeah. um and when, when i think of it it's like there's so many people that will tell you that you have to be a critical thinker and that you have to question stuff but then there's so many of those same people that don't do it themselves yeah. and I think it's more become this cliche term of, of critical thinking and not many people actually engaging in, in what that entails so all the information that come across should be screened with some sort of uh, critical view and that's not to say that you have that you have to reject everything it's that you probably take on or most of it but just at least question where is this coming from uh, and what kind of supporting evidence these people have mm what else verifies this, what opposing information is there, and then kind of weighing that up in your own mind as opposed to just being someone who uh, like becomes these fanboys of one of these gurus who just like accepts every word they say, which is unfortunately what's happening quite a lot, um, especially in the fitness industry. It's uh, it, it's something I've, I've, uh, I've seen before, and I, <clears throat> I don't know how I came across this, but I remember uh, like watching something about like great debaters and like one of the common things all great debaters done was they would come up with arguments against actually what they believed so that they would pretend that they were arguing against what they were putting forth as their argument so again they were kind of trying to scrutinize why exactly they believe what they did yeah I think I think um, there's another great example in there's a book by the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, called Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. Yeah. Um, and in that, he talks around uh, debating uh, arguments and how you can kind of successfully construct an argument. Uh, and he's kind of like this four-step process. Um, and it, essentially, the, like the first step is relaying back to that person their viewpoint so they can verify that what you picked up is actually what they meant because that's usually where people go wrong that two different camps are arguing something where they're both talking about something different. So verifying that you understood them perfectly, yeah. then going on to state all the things that you agree on in your in your points, after that maybe stating what you've learned from the opposition, and then once you've done all those things, then and only then are you open to go and attack their viewpoint or criticize it as needs be. Um, and in certain cases that's perfectly acceptable. Because that's a whole other area right now where um, I start to get a bit worried that people, anytime somebody criticizes someone else's idea, a lot of the time it, it is completely acceptable to do, but people are now saying, oh, you're just being a hater, you're, you're hating those people's ideas, and they're only trying to help people. And but that's fine, but if they're doing it in a way that's uh, spreading poor information, then that poor information should be able to be say, well, this isn't correct. Yeah. Um, so there is a, a kind of different thing of, of being actually hating on someone personally versus actually just attacking their opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole other <clears> concept, which... 
it's, 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 it's like another double-edged sword scenario almost again but yeah exactly it's it's very very true it's like the it's like Mike Boyle talks about in the fitness industry with the pendulum the pendulum usually swings from one end to the other so like before it was all about like you know uh, you know attacking people's ideas and being critical now it's kind of swinging back to oh you're you know you're just a hater or mm. so it's it's it, usually the answer is somewhere in the middle but uh that's Daniel Dennis he was one of the four horsemen wasn't he like with Sam Harris and all them boys was he he'd, he'd be in that arena yeah they're very kind of similar uh, views yeah 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 no, he's very good so I suppose Danny we'll get to more of the main team of this show of why we got you on and and like anyone that listens to Sigma Nutrition, I, I'd say what we're about to discuss about it, it's probably been discussed through the many episodes that are already up in Sigma. I think you're you're on hundred and nine at the moment, but mainly want to get you on here to talk about you know your overarching principles that guide your thought process when it comes to nutrition and health and wellness and sort of the big rocks that you feel are most important and like sort of the pitfalls where people fall down. Kind of you know. I suppose if you listen back to your episodes you've done with Eric Helms, the very first one, and Mike Isbertel, and you know they have their nutritional hierarchies, and so basically, like you know, what is your hierarchy? What are the principles that guide your thought process when it comes to, um, I suppose like you know I was gonna say optimizing health and wellness, but I suppose it's not really optimizing. It's kind of like, you know, just what are the big rocks that need to be in place if somebody wants to optimize their nutrition and their health and wellness and performance? Yeah, sure. Um, so probably the first thing is that. I'm probably not going to be able to add anything different to what Eric Holmes or Mike Isretel or, or Brad Schoenfeld or any of these guys that have uh, talked about this hierarchy of the factors that are important for, for nutrition. So everyone knows that there's a number of different factors that are going to influence your results that you get with your nutrition, whether that's for body composition, performance, health, whatever it is. And the hierarchy comes about because not all these factors are equal. And oftentimes people have them in or place too much emphasis on the factors that don't have much influence and not enough emphasis on the stuff that does. Um, so the, the classic thing of, if especially if we're talking about body composition, but this is also translate across to, to performances as well, that in order to reach your goal, the num- number one thing that your diet must take care of is energy balance. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you want to decrease body fat in the long term or decrease body weight in the long term there has to be some sort of calorie deficit and then if you want to increase muscle mass over a prolonged period of time there has to be some sort of calorie surplus um, created and, and like this idea maybe gets misinterpreted by people as me saying that oh the only thing that matters is calories or nothing nothing else is important as calories so that's kind of a straw man argument because the other kind of side of the coin that people debate around uh, food quality and the types of food you include is not something that can be distinct from caloric intake, really, in most like free living situations with people. Mm-hmm. Because if you change the type of foods people have, by nature, a lot of that time that will change their uh, energy balance. It'll either impact their their calories coming in. So, for example, if they start eating foods that are very highly processed, hyperpalatable, um, low in fiber, low in protein, it makes it much more likely that over the course of the day they'll be able to overeat on those foods or not to, especially in the long term, keep at a level that they they want to if they're aiming for a calorie deficit, for example. So the food quality is in, inherently tied to uh, caloric intake in a lot of cases. 
Now, if someone's obviously tracking things, there's ways you can do that, that you can include uh, poor quality foods and still create a deficit. So we know like Mark Haub has done the, the Twinkie diet where for like three months he was basically eating candies and having a multivitamin and he loses weight and improves biomarkers of health. But again, for most people that's going to be very uh, unsustainable because it just becomes so difficult when you base most of your diet on those poor quality foods. And that's not even looking at long-term health implications. Mm -hmm. So calories will still be the number one determinant you need to take care of. And that's not to say food choices need to be made on a calorie basis. So that's not to say that something highly calorific like, say, some nuts isn't a good choice in comparison to some sort of low-calorie, junky-type food. But it just means the overall context of your diet, the overall amount over a prolonged period of time has to be, you have to structure your diet in such a way that you hit a uh, calorie target that will give you your goal. Um, and then after that, you start looking at the macronutrient breakdown of that. So ensuring you have sufficient protein, um, then your carbohydrates and fats can will generally depend on what someone's goal is, how they respond, their, their preference for different types of foods. And next on that kind of hierarchy looks at the nutrient density of those uh, foods that are included. Um, so the micronutrition, vitamins and minerals. Um, and this is, again, one that has been uh, people maybe have, some people don't focus enough on it and some people maybe uh, focus a bit too much without taking care of the other bottom two uh, pieces of the, the hierarchy. Um, and then up from micronutrition, you're looking at things like nutrient timing, um, meal frequency, uh, distribution of meals over the course of the day, etc. And then the very like smallest contribution to your results is going to be supplementation. Um, and so with that kind of idea of a hierarchy, we're just looking at what way can you structure your diet that will take care of most of these things. Um, and if you're not taking care of something or you're not achieving what you're supposed to be achieving, the first place to look is at those kind of build big building blocks of looking at your caloric intake uh, and your macronutrients. Um, and I think it's what one thing that is important to kind of point out is that the the pitfalls or what each person does that maybe not be perfect um, is different from each person, and but each time it's always going to be something that causes them not to be consistently sticking to a structure that will take care of all those things. So if someone, um, so for example someone's pitfall could be knowledge. They might not know that they need to eat in a certain way or eat specific types of, uh, or eat a, at a specific type of uh, calorie intake and they're eating all good quality foods but they're just eating too much of it. Mm -hmm. So for them they just need to make that realization. For someone else they could already know that but they make their diet so restrictive that it's difficult to stick to and they end up binging for two or three days out of every seven. Um, and so each person's pitfall is different, but it all comes back to the same thing. It's just something that causes them not to be consistently adhering to those big pieces of, uh, those big fundamental pieces of nutrition of getting a caloric intake, getting sufficient amount of protein, carbohydrate, and fat for your goal, and doing that mainly through good quality food, I would say. Um, not to say it's the only thing that can be included, but I think most of someone's food should be real, whole, natural, whatever you want to call it, just actual, properly, proper food that you're going to 
at least cook from scratch or someone has cooked from scratch I, I think also too uh, just touching back on on um, on this hierarchy too and, and you know the the foundation being you know your energy balance and like you said so many people get sort of confused around that area and one of the it was on one of your episodes and I remember you saying this and, and like you know me me and you we're, we're exactly on the same page right now in, in our sort of thought process on on nutrition and, and this hierarchy and health and wellness and, and that's and that's not to say we'll always be on the same page of course we're always growing and, and learning more and developing as people but I remember you were saying that uh you know you use people like say also oh, it's just about energy balance energy energy it doesn't really matter and again you were, and you spoke about this with Kieran um O'Regan on one of your episodes where it was like people do something and then they they think that okay this something that I did gave me this result so therefore this everyone does this they'll get this result whereas you need to look at the the underlying factor of why that works so for instance when somebody you usually goes like on a paleo diet and let's say before that they were just eating a standard western diet like like the sad diet the standard american diet and they go on a paleo diet and then they lose weight or their body composition improves and they go the paleo diet done this 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 let's say it was a low carb version of go this low carb paleo diet done this therefore you know you got to take the carbs out and go paleo and you'll lose weight where really it was the fact that they replaced their their poor food choices and highly palatable foods that they over ate on which put them in a surplus with more satiating foods of protein and good fats and and right. more fibrous vegetables they by default went into a deficit going back to that yeah it came back to energy balance in and energy out so uh, I know maybe just like I know it's not really a question but maybe you can further add to that or yeah I think the point that me and uh, Kiran we often discuss this is this whole idea of principles over methods, methods yeah. and uh, it applies to pretty much everything uh, in life and with regards to nutrition we're talking about that you can find an endless number of methods to reach your goal. So if someone's goal says weight loss, you can find people that have done that via a vegan diet, mm -hmm. a paleo diet, a Weight Watchers diet, a strict calorie counting, flexible diet, like whatever you want, you can find people who have been successful on it and you can find people that haven't. So anytime you find a case study of someone that has done something with the nutrition has got a certain goal, the thing isn't to understand what method they used, it's to understand what is the underlying principles of why that worked. What mechanism caused this thing to work? Uh, and so you gave a great example there of uh, a paleo diet, why it often will allow people to lose weight in a short period of time. We see the same thing with uh, low carbohydrate diets. People end up taking out a lot of more highly processed foods. They, their protein intake generally comes up, satiety increases, etc. Uh, I think one of the examples I gave in that uh, episode with Kiran was uh, carb backloading, right? So that that's like this perfectly formulated set of principles that's easy for people to understand um, that takes care of all those fundamental pieces but makes it look like it's uh, some, some sort of magic going on in that. So for like carb backloading for people that haven't come across that, it's this protocol where early part of the day is almost like a ketogenic diet with a smaller breakfast and lunch with no carbohydrates you train around in the evening time and then after training you can have a load of carbs um, and so what is essentially going on there is that first part of the day we're taking out most of the foods that someone's likely to overeat on 
um, or generally that are hyper palatable that they overeat on, which is high sugar, low fiber foods. Mm. Um, they're kind of gone, so people are just having some vegetables and meat for a couple of meals. Then they have to go and train in the evening, and then they can have some carbohydrates after once they've done some sort of training, which probably is depleted a bit of glycogen. It's also um, probably increased their energy expenditure, obviously, so they have more room for extra calories. And if they don't do that weight training session, then they don't eat carbs that day. And then, so everything is taken care of, but there's nothing inherently magic about that method. It's just taking care of those kind of few principles. Yeah. Um, and so that comes back to the critical thinking we mentioned earlier of when you see something work, asking, well, why did this work? Um, and that, that's where, like, even having a very basic understanding of, of human physiology becomes huge because you can start to see, well, all this is these are things that affect your results from nutrition and you can pick whatever protocol you want so if you feel good on um, a carb backloading or a ketogenic diet or paleo diet or a vegetarian diet that's fine pick whatever is going to allow you to stick to those kind of core principles versus to say that not everyone has to do it and you don't have to do it that way there's a number of different methods you can set up yeah and, and just another great thing that really drove this point home about like the, the idea of the energy balance and again the kind of principles versus methods was uh, you were talking about like <clears throat> you know when it comes down to energy balance you were like listen you can be in a deficit where you're eating pr- like processed foods and you're you know and you're if you, you can eat processed foods and as long as you're still hitting your proteins carbs and fats you can still get good body composition results or you could eat a more whole, wholesome diet, you know, and also looking after macronutrients. The only difference between the two is you'll feel more hunger on the more processed food diet, and that's why people then, when they go into more the wholesome foods, and feel more satiated and lose weight. That's why it's easily or more sustained, or that's why people will start saying, "Oh, the paleo diet or, or some wholesome diet." Like even if it was vegetarian, they'll say this diet made me lose weight. Where really it was that it, again, it kept you, it kept you more satiated, and it put you into a deficit. Whereas you could go in a deficit eating crappy foods. But you'll just be more hungrier. I, I liked when you said that. You're like you'll just feel hungrier. Whereas people usually, when they go on or when they change their diet, they usually think about food quality first, and rather than the steps that come before that. And it, again, it, by the default, to put them into this deficit. Yeah, hundred percent. And that that's a huge piece to it. And I think that's why this blend of understanding where your calorie and macronutrient needs are, but also then focusing most of your actual food choices on on good quality foods or whatever you want to call them, like whole foods, is a good idea because it just, the two of them are tied. It, one helps the other. Mm-hmm. Um, only yesterday I had a, a client who's he's in a deficit now for quite a long period of time, coming up a couple of months now in, in a dieting phase, um, and just wanting to make a, a simple switch between usually having a, a protein shake, just a, a scoop, or, scoop or two of protein and some water after a workout, and I said waiting to have a meal where we can have some maybe some chicken and some vegetables it's going to have, give the same amount of protein and probably affect our overall daily targets the exact same but it just is much more uh, because he's, his, his diet is so low in calories right now it's just a lot more satiating to be able to fill up on a whole foods meal of some chicken and vegetables as opposed to getting that just from a um, liquid form of a supplement so all that stuff is inherently tied together and goes back to serve what we talked about earlier. The main things, above all these other factors, is someone's compliance in the long term. So consistently adhering to those principles 
And so if you're feeling super hungry all the time, it just makes it a battle of willpower, which eventually a lot of people break to. Um, I think a really good quote to kind of finish off this little section from Ralph Waldo Emerson in terms of principles versus methods. I always love this. And it's, uh, as to methods, there may be a million and then some, but principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who tries methods ignoring principles is sure to have trouble. I also love yeah. that quote. Hundred percent, man, love it. Um, you just mentioned the adherence there. Um, you know, another really this is honestly this is one of the best things that, that I heard in Sigma too. I was I, mean, I can actually remember I was walking down Drumcondor Road because it was one of these times where you know sometimes you're just doing podcasts and you can zone and zone out, but you said this line and it kind of stopped me in my tracks and like that is such a simple line, but yeah, it's so true. And you just basically said there's two types of diets: ones that work and ones that don't. And like pe- people could listen to that and go, uh, of course, duh. but you were getting to the heart of it comes down to adherence. Like, what what will the person adhere to? So, and I don't know if I got this example for you or someone else, but some I remember hearing sometimes somebody was saying that if you have a client in front of you and like they only eat twice a day, and then you're like, right, you have to eat now seven meals a day, mm. you know, and like da 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 da, and all this, and again going back to the principle of no, they have to hit a certain caloric intake. They have to hit their macros, and then if they if they want to hit that in three meals or seven meals, that that stuff then gets a lot more, uh, superior. You know, it's not superficial. It doesn't matter as much, obviously, as it does to the calorie intake and macronutrient breakdown and all that. But it, you know, if and we've seen this to Eric Helms's hierarchy too. That around this whole hierarchy, adherence is the key factor. So maybe just touch on like adherence and, and meeting kind of clients where they're at because I definitely know for me and I don't know about you when we first got into this field we, we probably try to force too much on people too soon and, and if we'd known these principles earlier we would have been a lot more loose in the methods to, to, to uh, you know if we knew these principles we could have been a lot more selective in our methods and that would have helped the person be more successful with adherence yeah 100% I think that was a good example you gave and I think there's a number of those of where like people may rightly say, well, does it matter if this approach is like evidence based or not, or if it's uh, bro science or whatever? I, I know this works. Look, uh, I can go and uh, I know that this will work, so I'll just tell someone to do it. What's the harm in that? It's like that's fine, but what you're doing then is you're making someone eat in a certain way that maybe they could get the same result without that same either mental hassle or some other use of a, a resource. Um, so. Uh, we could say, for example, again, if someone is told to lose weight, they have to go on a super low carb diet, or even have to do something like carb backlogging, where they, they can only have carbs in the evening. And that person has actually recently, say, made a change from their usual uh, poor quality breakfast of having a going down to the shop and, and buying a chicken roll. And I was said, okay, I've, I've recently started having like a bowl of porridge in the morning. Uh, with a banana or something like that. Um, so that's, in general, a positive change that that person's made, but now suddenly they're hearing that it's the wrong thing to be doing and that they shouldn't have done that. They don't have carbs in the morning, that, that carbs are going to put them in a, are going to stop fat burning for the day, all this yeah. kind of nonsense that you hear. Yeah. And now suddenly, because someone is going with a specific method, then that instead of realizing that, actually, you know what? My client can have carbs in the morning if that suits them better. For some people, it won't. Some people prefer not to have anything in the morning, so maybe they're going to go with intermittent fasting. The same thing is fine because we can still work out 
what do they need for the, the day in general. Yeah. Um, some people prefer to have a large amount of calories in the evening. So let's save that in the early part of the day and partition more of it in the evening instead of thinking, uh, again, some of these old myths of not eating past a certain time of the day. Um, <laughs> so it kind of evaporates all that stuff. And so then if you're not born into the mindset of they have to eat at these specific times or they have to eat this amount uh, at these certain times of the day, you can then start fitting things around someone's current lifestyle um, and something that they're going to be likely able to do so that you're like kicking off these big building blocks but the changes that they're doing isn't a massive overhaul for someone um, and uh, like a, a quote that I keep referring to all the time is uh, one from uh, The Simpsons uh, Homer says uh, I guess some people never change or they quickly change and then quickly change back again yeah. um, and it's generally what happens that for some people, they can make they can go cold turkey and make massive drastic change, and that suits them. But for a lot of people, the problem is going from a, a point of zero to a hundred immediately and, and trying to overhaul everything, and it's just too overwhelming, and then they just slip back. And uh, so, trying to just figure out what's the first thing we can change here that's gonna be someone's gonna be able to do. What are, like what is something that is achievable for them to do, include in their day? that's going to edge us towards that, that place. Um, and, and so if something is compromising what someone's usual structure of the day is or even their preferences on types of foods and times to eat meals, then that's going to be something that's making it unnecessarily difficult. Um, and it's, so it's just causing someone more mental anxiety than they, than they need to. Um, and actually that's something that's... Um, Joseph Agu, who's a nutritionist in the UK, has presented on before, and he's, he's written a really good blog post on uh, science versus bro science. And one of the kind of big reasons why an evidence-based approach is generally better is because you it's really a resource thing when you're talking about clients. So if you're going with these, uh, someone could ask a very fair question, like I mentioned earlier, well, if this method is it works for people, then why does it matter if it if I if it's not evidence based or uh, that I'm using bro science or whatever you want to call it? Well, it comes down to that person's resources that you're working with. So, could you be getting then the same result, but maybe them having to spend less money? So we know of certain protocols where people get certain type of testing and are told to get all these expensive supplements mm. that they probably don't need and can get the exact same result without them, so now you're just using someone's resources uh, that they don't need to be used. Um, is it causing someone more mental anxiety? That's, again, that mental stress is still a resource that you're using up for someone. Is it causing someone more physical effort in the long term to achieve a certain goal? Um, so all these, these different pieces of the puzzle come in, and it's all undermined by how can we make this process as easy as possible by tying it into what someone's currently doing. Uh, and that's, I think, where the adherence and compliance fits in and why really there is no one best diet because if uh, because each person is going to have something different they respond better to in terms of how easy they find it. Yeah, it's it's funny now that we're talking around this sort of subject of, of adherence and trying to make things as, as easy and as applicable as possible because something that's been a, a real ongoing theme in sort of, I suppose 
I'll use the word in my subconscious, it's, it just seems to be propping up everywhere the last few months, is like this idea of just efficiency and minimum effective dose and like 80-20 mm-hmm. and biggest bang for your book and like just, you know, j- just these ideas of, uh, and the other idea of like of Occam's razor, like the, the most logical solution is probably the answer and we spoke about this offline and just for the listeners, like, uh, like Christmas 2014, like I was getting some stomach issues and Danny was laughing at this because like, I was there, God, what's like, you know, I just wasn't digesting my food great, and, you know, just my digestion wasn't great, and I was there, you know, Jesus, do I have H. pylori, do I have low stomach acid, am I not making enough enzymes, you know, all these things came into my head, and it simply just came down to I was eating too much food, <laughs> particularly protein, yeah. I was just woefully, woefully overeating protein, I was just getting really badly bloated, and uh, just once I figured out that, uh, at that time when I said it to you before I just had no appreciation of portion sizes like none and when I did the Amazing 12 with Jason Kane, like and started to understand oh like I don't need three chicken breasts at a meal I don't need all this protein one has enough like one chicken breast is about 50 grams of protein like and that's pretty much all I probably could absorb in one go uh, you know it, it, it just gave me so much more appreciation for portion control and then like my health has never been better in terms of just everything like since that and all it was was a simple just you need to eat less calories and space out your meals and stop eating such big meals in one go like it was such an easy solution but i was looking at all these extravagant fucking supplements to help my stomach and and then people can prey on that too you know you get people going oh have you stomach issues you might have this you need this like thousand 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 year old lab tests and all these supplements you know so yeah uh, i mean there's there's definitely applications for stuff like that but oh yeah absolutely yeah, but like it it becomes a point of like if there's something serious going on and you go to a gastroenterologist and he's like okay we need to do something here that's fine but when you start like looking at this stuff it's literally like I was the I've said to you before I was, I was the same about things the more you look into it the more you start to see well all of this stuff applies to me and then your diet becomes more and more restrictive yeah. and uh, I remember like a, a few years ago it came to the point where basically uh, most of, like pretty much all my meals were going to be lots of vegetables and uh, some sort of meat done in a slow cooker. Yeah, like, I that was it because I anything else say. had the potential to yeah. be bad somewhere, right? Yeah, and uh, so and, and with that, it's just it's completely unnecessary, um, and it's just a point of where you're freaking yourself out, and you actually end up in a place where you are perhaps making yourself more unhealthy. That if uh, you can actually affect then the type of enzymes you're produ- producing um, if you're not coming into contact with those foods um, all the time. Um, and I think it's it's very easy to confirm or self-confirm something if you want it to be true. And yeah. it's, a, it's a difficult position. But once you have that freedom of just realizing, okay, there's a few things that need to be taken care of with my diet, I can generally be a bit more relaxed uh, in certain areas and just focus on some. Um, and then you really just have this mental freedom that you can now go and experience things in life that probably have a, a greater impact on your health. So, like your general stress levels on a day-to-day basis, if you're eating the, like the quote-unquote perfect diet, but it's causing you super stress and yeah. you have to focus on every single meal and, and can't get something out somewhere or can't attend a social occasion, that's a big deal for your health. Like that is that's nothing to be uh, sniffed at. It's a huge deal. Um, and so it's again people just taking the time to, to learn about this stuff mm. because it's impossible for 
Like it's very, I think the the reason why a lot of this stuff works on people, it's very easy for someone to say, if this is your problem, go and follow this method. Yeah. Whereas to really understand things like portion size or how much you're overall consuming or what macronutrients even are or what kind of food choice to, to get to your level of intake, what that looks like, all that stuff takes a bit of time to work out and how you respond um, as opposed to being this magic bullet that people are after. Well, one thing I will say about kind of learning these principles too, what I found was it was so liberating, you know, in terms of like, uh, like so liberating in terms that like, listen, once I know that my calories and my macros are being met, like I can pretty much go anywhere at any time and, and be, be okay once I know this, this kind of background knowledge. And like another thing that, and I, I've always, I, this is one thing I've wanted to really discuss with you, is that, and I'm trying to get this point across to people, and I guess I'm at a stage where I'm, I need to, I need to find a way to articulate this so that people understand what I'm trying to say. And it's basically like, okay, you you could say like, like I live such a healthy lifestyle, I exercise really well, and I eat quote unquote really well, whatever that really means, you know, like I eat whole foods and I and I have adequate calories and macros and all that. But you kind of just alluded to there, if it gets to a stage where it's actually not adding to your life anymore, it's actually adding the stress. God, I didn't, I didn't, I mightn't have time to train today, or, or shit, I might have to skip a meal, or I have to eat something else. Then, it's not healthy anymore. Like it's, it's actually taking away from your health. And 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 a, a kind of analogy I tried to use too is that okay, you you know me too. I'm a big guy on sleep and circadian rhythms and. You know, you could end up being like a hermit and just like, no, I'm not going out tonight because I need to be in bed for 10. Instead of going out and socializing with your friends. And then like the, the, the sort of question I arise there is, is the actual going out and socializing with your friends and, and having like the, almost the endorphins of being around your friends and, and having the crack, even though you're staying up until three in the morning, does that nearly out, like does that override the quote unquote negative impact of not getting those two hours before midnight? Do you know what I'm saying? So we can't we can't really look at these things in isolation and go, oh, you know, you'll disrupt your circadian rhythm and the blue light's going to kill you if you stay past you know midnight and it's like but yeah but i'm staying out with friends having such fun and surely the socializing impact of that is adding to my health as well as as much as like the negative consequence of staying up late was that one night and then also taking that same sort of thing towards food okay like i might have missed a meal but i or, or i didn't eat my, i didn't cook my own meal but i sat down and had a meal with friends and family and the experience was so much more fulfilling and surely that nearly overrides the fact that oh I might have ate too many calories there or I didn't have optimal nutrient breakdown is, is that making sense? Yeah, yeah. No, one phrase that I always keep coming back to, I think that ties in here, is that literally every decision you make is a trade-off yeah. between two different things. So it's just being aware of what those things are, what that trade-off means, and then making the decision based on your goal. Mm. So, for example, if someone wants to go out for a meal on a, a certain weekend or not go out because that will put them over their calorie intake for that day. That's a trade-off that they have to decide based on, on their circumstances and their goal at that time what is best for them. Yeah. For most people, it's perfectly fine. If maybe you're in the middle of a contest prep for a bodybuilding show in two weeks, then you have to accept the trade-off of not going out to that thing. And that's fine because you're making that decision based on what your goal is and knowing the trade-off between those two things. Yeah. Um, and then for everyone else, like knowing that like if you go out and, and go over a calorie target on one day, it's going to have virtually no impact, yeah. um, especially if, if it's like on, on one particular occasion. So it's everything is going to be a trade-off and realizing what those are. Um, and like you say, most of the time, 
um, I actually wrote a, an article on this before around how the most nutritious diet is very a distinct idea from the healthiest way to eat yes, because yeah, yeah. something can be super nutritious and the most nutrient dense diet you can pick but it's not necessarily encapsulating healthy eating behaviors yeah. or a healthy approach towards eating I think being able to go out um, for, for a meal with friends or to be able to go and get some ice cream with someone or if you're going to the cinema with a girl to be able to sit there and eat popcorn and, and not be able to just say oh I can't have that like those things are inherently important like they are healthy behavior, behaviors to have to, to be able to have mm. and it's not to say one is better than the other so it's not to say always going out is better than staying in oh, sometimes you'll say well actually I'm going to, to stay in this time or I'm going to eat this meal instead of in, enjoying this other one um, and again it's just because you have to understand that trade off if you've got a specific goal so like I say if you're a competitor and you need to get to 5% body fat the sacrifices you make are going to be a lot bigger than virtually most of the rest of us yeah. um, but just understanding that anything you do is going to be a trade off one way or the other and that at any given time each one of those choices could be the best and could make you healthier and happier um, and I think the best way to sum up the one I, the quote I keep coming back to is um, the strength coach uh, Jim Laird I don't know do you Jim on yeah, the show yeah, I, know Jim, I haven't done a podcast yeah. but I know who he is yeah yeah, yeah, really, really cool. And uh, he said, he was talking in the context of training, and he said that training is something that should enhance your life, not consume it. Yeah. And, and the same thing applies then to nutrition, right? That it's the whole reason why virtually all of us started down this road of trying to eat a different way or starting to change our diet was that we were, the end goal, whatever it is for that specific person, would make us healthier and it would make us happier right and that's great and everyone makes these changes but something along the way gets us kind of caught up and it starts turning from making us healthy and happier to doing almost the opposite that it's just starting to consume us and like like what I was doing like focusing on every little detail not just enjoying other stuff in life and eventually it's going against the whole goal um, so keep bearing that in mind and not becoming super obsessive and neurotic about every little thing is really really important um, and then if, if all that stuff it makes you happy then then do that yeah Danny so the, the other reason why I got you on kind of this is what, if we were to split this into two parts this would be the second part and it's this idea of you know good science versus bad science or poor science and how to critically think I mean this is an area that I definitely need to uh, to educate myself more on in terms of maybe not so much the concept of critical thinking but be, be, being better at disseminating information and you know you know deconstructing it and then coming to my own conclusions like more so when it comes to like academic stuff uh, you read a lot more research than I do and to be honest I need to understand how to read papers a lot better in terms of like things like p-values and uh, standard deviations and stuff like that I wouldn't have as much background on that as yourself but just maybe for just even the, the lay person is there some sort of again principle um principle-based formula that, that, that people can like you know integrate straight away into their everyday lives to help them critically think more about the information that they're presented with um, yeah so th there's a few things I think one of the things we mentioned offline was those kind of few screening questions of yeah. um, if someone says something is there first of all a, a mechanism by which this could work so in biology is there some sort of mechanism is there evidence to support what they're saying is there evidence that goes against that? Um, 
is there kind of a, a basis for way that made this way work? But I think even with those things, there's still some sort of understanding of some science required. So maybe a best way to look at it is to look at someone's uh, argument or how they're coming to those conclusions. Uh, and so when when I've uh, presented before on this idea of science versus pseudoscience, there's five kind of factors that I come back to where you see this clear distinction that if you can spot some of these, it might tell you whether someone's practicing good science or whether it's just this pseudoscientific uh, claim or, or some sort of quackery. Um, and so but the first one would be that with science, what we're aiming to do is to start by looking at data and then based on that come to our best conclusion. Like that's what science is. Whereas in if someone's uh, you more like on the pseudoscience side or is uh, trying to confirm something they want to be true, they often start with this preconceived conclusion and work back from that to confirm it. Um, and, and so like a good example would be one of the other factors uh, is that I mentioned is cherry picking. Um, a lot of kind of these gurus that you see that have this idea that they want to confirm, they'll go and search for a study that shows that and then they'll put it up online and people are like, oh, there is science behind this. It's like, that's not good science. They're picking one study that fits their bias. They're ignoring all the others that maybe don't and they're not looking at the whole body of evidence. And that's what good science is. It's like, okay, here's all the kind of information and, and studies in this area. What does the general consensus in the scientific community say on this topic? And that's maybe the best starting point, as opposed to like picking one or two things that confirm a bias. Um, the, the, the third thing that I, I mentioned with those is that a pseudoscientific side would generally extrapolate their claims way beyond what evidence actually says. So there may be some evidence hinting at something in a certain area, but they'll take that and run with it and say, oh, this is the way to eat, or this is the best thing to do based on X, Y, and Z, and it's way beyond what that research paper actually said. Whereas the claims in science are actually very conservative. And you see this, like, anytime you go to a scientific conference or you hear an academic do a presentation, it's literally them just talking about their kind of best idea of where things currently stand, uh, making very conservative claims, putting lots of caveats in there, explaining the context behind that, uh, saying there's other work that maybe might show something new. Um, and it's the, the claims are also very tentative in that they can change over time as opposed to people being stuck with these certain ideas. Um, the, one of the final things would be with pseudoscience, people get very dogmatic and are unwilling to consider uh, opposing views. So as soon as they're presented with uh, opposing evidence, they become immediately defensive, um, usually kind of quite aggressive in their arguments, and are kind of stuck with their one idea instead of being open to others. Whereas good science is just being willing to change your opinion if you come across new evidence. Um, and so I think that's that's why I have no problem saying to people like, here's here's a load of things that I was wrong about. Um, but just when I came across new evidence, I actually said, well, actually, okay, I was wrong here. Here's now, based on this better and more informed uh, piece of information, now this is probably my current stance. And so there's probably things I know now that will change going to the future as I come across more uh, evidence and more papers come out. Um, and that kind of ties into uh, the final thing I mentioned to people is that when you're, you see these like, online debates, usually good scientists will engage in an objective debate 
of that concept being discussed. So they'll be using uh, studies, they'll be using facts, they'll be talking about that concept in general. Um, whereas more kind of the, the bro science or pseudoscience type stuff, you see people using like a, a lot of logical fallacies. Um, so like straw man arguments be one where they say, oh, you said this, this means you're trying to say why, and it, that's not really the case. Um, and for all those kind of logical fallacies, like going back to Daniel Dennett's book, he has, he has a whole list of those um, which people commit. So there are kind of things to look out for that might indicate whether someone's approach is scientific or, or pseudoscientific. Um, and I think like the second part of your question was uh, things to be aware of with science. Yeah, as, as in, like, how can, I suppose it's like, how can just the lay, well, you kind of laid it out there, it was just like, how can just the average lay person be more critical when presented with information, you know, because you know yourself, most lay people, yeah. if they see an authoritarian figure, just subconsciously, they just automatically sort of accept, well, such and such said this, and they seem to be an expert in it, so therefore I'm going to believe it, where really, we should be more like, such and such said this, I don't know that to be true because I don't have a background in it. So what I'll do is I'll do a little background research, and then you kind of just went through the steps of what what we should be looking for, like supporting yeah. evidence, non-supporting evidence. I suppose it's just it's the case of that, like. Yeah, hundred percent. So they'd be kind of the the red flags to kind of watch out for, I think. Um, and then you kind of get the whole thing that if people do want to look at some of the basics around um, science, there's there's a whole host of areas that you can look at, like the the quality of evidence used. So like a, a case report or a case control study is not as uh, strong evidence as a randomized control trial, for example. Mm. And you know, if someone hasn't looked into to studies, then none of that will kind of make sense. But just being aware of those things or, or trying to look into it makes a big difference. Um, another huge one, like you mentioned, like p-values earlier, uh, you look at a study that gets reported, there was a significant difference between this group and this group. And then suddenly you get a media headline of um, saying that there's this significant difference between eating this type of diet versus this. And so for most people, the idea of significant means something big. So there's a, there's a big difference or there's a significant moment where in, in science all we're talking about is that there's a p-value less than 0 0.05. So like the probability of that coming down to chance was less than 5%. And that's all it's being said there, um, but it gets kind of extrapolated as being wrong. Um, there's other things to watch out for like selection bias is, is big in, in certain areas where uh, like an, an, a good analogy might be that if we were to carry out a study looking at the height of American males but the cohort we select to choose is 30 uh, uh, American males so that seems fine on paper but when you look at it that cohort could be the Golden State Warriors basketball team so then based on that you could have a very real conclusion of oh based on our data from this study we estimate the average height of American males to be approximately six foot seven right and that's using something because that group was selected for with some sort of bias uh, you get into the whole area then of correlation and causation um, which we can talk about if you want there's a number of different examples of this um, so for example the idea of like uh, skipping breakfast makes you fat or uh, eating small meals frequently after a day makes you leaner. There's observational evidence to show these things, but when you understand why that's the case, it, it's very different. It's because people carrying out those things were generally healthier people anyway. Um, and there's a number of different uh, examples of that. 
But uh, I don't know if you want to get down that whole rabbit hole. Uh, well, we definitely, we de- definitely could get into that. But something I just want to say was when you were talking about, uh, you were talking about, you know, when you go see a, a researcher present, that I heard you say the exact same thing in your latest episode with Ben. You know that they come mm. up with all these caveats, and it's funny. I'm I'm actually reading through uh, Robert Sazalski's book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and you know, constantly throughout that book, he just has loads of these uh, footnotes and like caveats. Like he'd make a point, yeah. and he'd have a little asterisk beside and say, he you know he'd give a, a counter argument to what he just said. So it, it's kind of the sign of a very uh, good scientist and a critical thinker. Um, but it, just just going off the, the critical thinking, Danny, two two areas that I really want to get your input on here, and you've spoken at large at both of these, um, just in terms of you know being able to critically think, is gluten being one, and then the second one, this idea of, you know, if I eat a high fat diet, I'll burn more fat, and you've kind of discussed this idea, you know, the in around like. Uh, De, de novo lipogenesis uh, and you know the idea that okay you might be burning more fat but you're eating more fat versus if you just set a regular macronutrient breakdown and again it, it's it just basically came back to, to, to caloric intake i think at the end of the day but can you maybe just discuss so the two areas that i want you to discuss and tie it in with critical thinking is critical thinking about gluten and then to critically think about this idea if i eat more fat i burn more fat yeah okay i'll, I'll try and uh, do my best with those because there was there were quite uh, big pieces, I think the. Uh, we can uh, also. Uh, I'll also, if you want to send me the links to the articles you have on the the gluten uh, and the the high fat diets for burning more fat, that I read both those articles and thought yeah. they were outstanding. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll send those because I think just for people who want a bit more context to it, um, I think like the the fat oxidation one was like maybe two or three thousand words, and like the gluten ended up being four posts. So it actually will give people a much better understanding and a deeper understanding to read those. But if we're talking about critical thinking, I think one of the big examples, like I said earlier, of things I've changed my mind on, gluten being one over the last couple of years, um, and I started those articles by saying this is something I was probably overly harsh with in the past, Mm. um, based on, again, looking at studies where you can find that uh, ingestion of gluten will cause increase in say intestinal permeability so immediately like okay this is bad right we're increasing uh, this or we're causing like this leaky gut to uh, occur but when you start looking down deeper into the science you see that it's probably not going to be as much an issue for a lot of people um, and so you see uh, if you look at the work of Alessio Fasano which he's probably the, the most eminent researcher in the area of uh, gluten and non-celiac gluten sensitivity in the yeah, world right yeah. now. He puts it really, really well in a couple of his uh, uh, papers, where he talks about that. Yes, when when virtually across the board, the, like one of their studies showed, uh, I think it was actually a group in Scandinavia actually showed that when someone that doesn't have celiac or doesn't have an autoimmune disorder consumes gluten, they still get that increase in intestinal permeability or the, the gaps between the cells of the gut lining so this kind of leaky gut which some people call it and and so you could think that's bad but then he goes on to say that this then means that just at that time it's more of this transient process that will just happen then and that if some of those gluten um, proteins slip through into the bloodstream they can be kind of cleared away without any issue so he compares it to uh, us coming across thousands of bacteria every day 
that are obviously not stuff that we want to be in our bloodstream, but it's very easy to clear it once we come across bacteria, our body deals with it, clears it out, it's no issue. If someone has a compromised immune system, though, they can have an issue with that. And it's the same thing that seems with gluten, that if someone's susceptible to having an issue with it, then they're unable to clear that and they get this uh, massive immune response, they get this massive amount of inflammation, and then that ties into all the stuff we see of people who become symptomatic from gluten ingestion, um, or at an even more extreme scale, people who have celiac and get uh, destruction of the gut lining. So understanding that kind of background mechanisms shows that, okay, even if it does cause an intestinal permeability, it's actually probably not a big deal. Um, and then you start looking for how prevalent this idea of non-celiac gluten sensitivity is in in the general population, and it's a lot. It's a lot, or uh, say that it's still a bigger issue than people who say that oh, you only need to avoid gluten if you have celiac disease, mm. because we we know now there are people that do have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but that those numbers are coming in. Most of the studies that I've seen are in around like. 6% on average of the population, somewhere as low as like 1%. Uh, the highest I've ever seen, I think, was at around 13% from a UK study. So, and again, the problem is trying to determine those. Um, there's no blood test that we can get done right now. Yeah, there's no yeah. actual clear biomarker that's currently there's accepted. In, in there's, just no way of, there's just no way of knowing, isn't there? Yeah, so it's, it's really down to first being screened, do you have a wheat allergy, do you have celiac disease, if you're negative for both of those, if you still get symptoms from gluten and you don't when you take it out, then you can maybe give a diagnosis of uh, NCGS. Um, but so, so looking at that, it just means that for most of the population that if you've never noticed anything with consuming gluten products before, you're probably fine. Um, and it also kind of just frees people up as to, you probably don't need to be uh, militantly gluten-free like someone who does have an issue like celiac needs to be. Um, so that was kind of one of the big things for me and, and just looking and trying to put past uh, what I had found when I'd say gone uh, a gluten-free diet uh, years back of why did I experience uh, an increase in, in how I felt uh, and kind of look critically then and just like the data is what the data is, right? So the, the research is there and that's what we can base it on right now. Um, and so that's the kind of gluten thing, and the uh, second was the fat burning thing. Um, so this came up from a commonly used phrase that I was seeing put around on social media of people talking about, if you eat more fat, you burn more fat. And essentially then this is insinuating to people that a high fat diet is better for fat loss, because, oh, if I go on a high fat diet and I eat more fat, then I'm going to be burning more fat and the big confusion comes from people not understanding the difference between fat burning and actual body fat loss because they're two different things when we talk about when when people are using the word fat burning it's really just a slang term for the process of fat oxidation in the body so that's what fat burning is whereas if, if you said it to someone on the street they're thinking that they're, they're literally getting rid of, of body fat if you're if you're burning fat um, and so it's just this confusion around the term. So then the, the kind of case I was making is that there are things that you can show in science will increase your fat oxidation levels, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're losing more body fat. Yeah. And the couple of examples I give is that if you go from a, say, a high-protein, moderate-carb, 
moderate fat or lowish fat diet, and you now go on a, a ketogenic diet or high fat diet, you will massively increase your fat oxidation levels. But what you're also doing, you're also increasing how much fat you're taking in. So when you're burning substrates for fuel, you're just burning more of that incoming dietary fat to create energy. So that's why your fat oxidation has gone up. And your body fat stores aren't going to be any different if that diet is matched for protein and calories. Yeah. Um, and at least that's what we see now. And, and again, there may be some weird stuff in, in a small number of people that have uh, differences in uh, like uh, genetics and um, maybe like there are a couple of studies that maybe look at insulin uh, sensitivity but if your diet is matched with calories and protein then if you just decrease carbs and increase fat the reason why you're burning more fat is just oxidizing more fat you're not losing any more body fat per se if we if we presume say your energy expenditures stay the same so it's just this confusion that people put and it's again not critically looking at, at some of this stuff. Um, there's other examples, I mean, if fasted cardio is the same thing, um, you can increase your fat your fat burning during your cardio session if you don't eat beforehand, as opposed to eating some uh, porridge, but when you look at it over the course of the day, that's not translating to any more body fat loss. Yeah. It's the exact same if your diet and your energy expenditure is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's all these examples that you have to just look a bit deeper and to, to ask, well, well, why, or does that actually translate to real-world differences, which oftentimes it doesn't. Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, just a question, just, just yeah, I've also wanted to ask you, and I've heard, I think it was, um, was it, um, I'm trying to think of his name now, I can't pronounce the name, is it Hemel, Hemel, what's his name, oh, I'm trying to think of it, he's a Scandinavian-Norwegian guy you've had in your show. Hemel Henselman or something like that or oh Menno Henselman Menno Henselman I'm actually That's sorry right. I apologise for butchering his name but no, I, 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 I think I, I think it was in that episode where he spoke about I think it was him now where he spoke about you can actually build you can build muscle on a deficit as long as your, your protein intake is sufficient and this, this is something that a lot of the students in the college I uh, teach often ask about and I just want to get your thoughts on it like is this you know like scientifically is that possible to build because it does make sense to me right you're in a deficit you definitely can like when you're in a deficit all that means is that you just cannot gain global body weight but your body composition can definitely change with different with different macronutrient compositions so yes you can definitely build muscle can you optimally build as much muscle as you could no but can you build more muscle yes but you will not gain weight like you will not go from 90 kilo to 95 kilo deficit but you can go from 90 kilo to 88 or 87 or 86 kilo and have more muscle to body fat ratio than you did 100 percent. yeah you, you just nailed it there that's exactly it and i think that's the case that menno makes um eric helms actually wrote a really good paper on it uh, or a, a really good article um i think with the guys from shredded by science and um, just it's that whole concept of when we look at energy balance that's what we're looking at we're literally looking at the energy going in and out of a system yeah so if we have a energy deficit and there's less going in and you're being able to liberate say body fat stores and you have sufficient protein and you have a sufficient stimulus from resistance training you can cause your body to want to build muscle and just going to use some of that energy so the only thing uh, dictated by the energy balance equation is changes in energy not in in muscle mass so a deficit doesn't 
prohibit you from building muscle. Yeah. And you see this over and over and over again in studies where people have been in a deficit and gained muscle mass. Um, only last week, uh, Stu Phillips' uh, uh, team at McMaster published a paper where they had people in a 40% calorie deficit, so a huge calorie deficit, um, and trained them for 12 weeks. And the, they com the what they were comparing was protein intake. So one group had 1.5 grams of protein per kilo of body weight, and the other group had, I think, 2.5 grams per kilo of body weight. Wow. Um, and I'll, I'll have to double check those figures. I think that's what yeah. they're comparing. And they found the high protein group was able to actually, I think they put on like one and a half to two kilos of lean body mass in that in that 12 week period, despite being in a calorie deficit of 40%. Yeah. And you see this kind of across the board. Um, so yeah, the, the energy balance is just literally referring to the energy going in and out of a system, not to the actual, uh, say tissue that's being built or lost. Yeah, because just in, I, I just wanted to be 100% sure that, that I'm disseminating proper information to students because there's, there's two sort of like what sound like paradoxes I all say to the students and one is one is this that like uh, so because I often guess can you build muscle in a deficit most most of the students like you can't you can't and I was like you absolutely can build muscle in a deficit because the students automatically think that you're gaining weight as in global body weight and I'm always like what you cannot do in a deficit is gain weight your global your global body weight will not go up in a deficit but you, your composition in terms of your lean mass to fat can absolutely be changed meaning that you can gain muscle and lose body fat and the, the other one I always say to them as well is can you eat more food and lose weight and then they always go no no because then you're in a you're in a you're in a caloric surplus I'm like no 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 I didn't say I didn't say can you eat more calories and lose weight I said can you eat more quantity of food and lose weight and then then like I say to them you can eat more quantity of food that has less calories in it yeah and, and that's where a lot of confusion comes now so you see people promoting this idea of um, there's this whole thing recently that we won't get into of, of someone talking about uh, eat more food, exercise less, yeah, fat, yeah. Right? and again for most people that's a, a misleading thing to say. Very misleading. Yeah. And where you could say like, oh, I'm talking about eating more volume of food, yeah, like the volume, yeah. and I'm talking about exercising for less amount of time, not less exercise overall in terms of energy expenditure. Um, but again, for most people, they'll pick it up wrong. Um, so yeah, yeah, completely agree. And I think on that, the the side of one important thing to point out with that um, gaining muscle in a deficit, for people to be aware of is, oh well, why don't we just always be in a deficit? If that's the case, why bother going into surplus? One, like you said, you're not going to gain as much as if you probably were in a surplus. Yeah. But number two is that for that to happen, you still need a sufficient uh, training stimulus that's either novel enough or intense enough to cause your body to want to add on more muscle mass. So trying to do that, you have to train intensely, maybe in, in a not, with a novel stimulus to the muscle, and so trying to do that with a massive deficit is obviously very mentally taxing, right? Um, so that, that's one thing to, to bear in mind, that why maybe um, if someone goes in a deficit and is just going through the motions with their training, then, yeah, they're probably not going to gain muscle at the end of eight weeks mm. but if they're training with a sufficient type of resistance training then yeah it's certainly possible yeah I, I think another sort of fallacy that 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 has come out over the years is that nutrition is like 90 percent and training is 10 percent whereas it's kind mm. of like nutrition is 100 percent and training is 100 percent yeah that, that's it there's this kind of idea of trying to uh, dichotomize it to like both are needed um, and both can can equally do a good job but um, 
like we you see this a lot with uh, dieting studies of people who have lost a lot of weight, and when you try to look at the maintenance of that loss, that generally the big difference between people who relapse and people who keep the weight off that they've lost is that people that have have exercise in their regime. So people can completely lose by just changing their diet and maybe not changing their lifestyle and exercise, but in the long term they end up gaining it back, whereas people who, who continue to exercise actually tend to have better outcomes for keeping that weight off. Yeah, absolutely. So Danny, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finally put you on the spot and, and uh, turn the tables here and ask you the question you ask everyone at the end of your show. Now before I ask, I, I have a feeling, I have a feel, well, I think I know what you're going to answer because it's, it's usually a very common answer on your show, but and I'm trying to make sure I've worded it just like you worded it, but um, are you sure you know what's coming? So if you could advise people to do something each and every day that would help improve their lives, what would that be? This is actually a lot more difficult than I would have thought of. Imagine seeing as I've asked it over a hundred times. Um, uh, I could go with, I think the one that you're thinking of that I've heard so often on the show, and I think um, which would be gratitude, and, yeah, and that, yeah. that's obviously a huge one. I think that encapsulates everything. It's it's amazing how many of your guests have said that, though, isn't it? It's it's yeah, it's phenomenal. It's and I, I keep saying it to them every every time. It's like, I I it always astounds me how many people who who are just doing really good things and helping so many people have that like, and they're coming from all these different backgrounds, they're from mm-hmm. different parts of the world in different areas, and it's kind of this this common theme that keeps coming up. Um, so. That would be definitely uh, an easy one to say, but maybe if I could add one different one, it's probably just going back to what I said earlier, that make your uh, decisions based on like what gets you excited, yeah. um, as opposed to searching for this thing of, of being happy, because um, there's actually a phenomenal book that I've recently finished called Stumbling on Happiness by, I think it's Daniel Gilbert, um, really phenomenal book. It's not a self-help book, it's not a how-to-be-happy book. Um, in case it, it's probably more the opposite, it's it's kind of a, a scientific explanation of why we're not happy when we do something that we thought we would be, and it's kind of uh, looks at the psychologically when we try and project what things that if I do now will make me happy in three years or five years or, or what things I need to be doing with my life, and um, that we're often really really bad at, at getting those things right. Um, and it's just almost impossible for the human mind to predict because um, thinking about it, like we're literally in two or three years time you're literally a different person so trying to predict what life situation you need to be in by then to be happy is really really difficult um, and so for me at least one of the, the takeaways that I took is just go through and like in a, any short block of time just do stuff that you're excited by do stuff that is, is making you happy. Just don't re- like it's it's something that people have heard. And it's difficult to do, but really just don't worry about stuff because it's really not that important. Like most stuff is is so insignificantly small in the grand scheme of things that getting frustrated and worked up about it is just not healthy and, and not not necessary. Um, and one kind of question that I kind of come back to is if you're worrying about a certain action or a certain decision you have to make soon or something that just happened to you today or yesterday, think about how are you going to feel about this in 10 years' time. So it's the year 2026 and you're looking back on how you felt right now. What is the, what, is it, what's the, what are you going to feel about it? And usually it's not as big a deal as we think. 
So uh, just keeping that kind of perspective and realizing that just go with whatever and, and just accept what how things pan out, uh, as opposed to trying to constantly think, oh, I want to be happy, or I need to be doing this. So just realize what you have there, and uh, and you'll be a lot happier, I think. Yeah, Daniel Gilbert, Stumble on Happiness. That's that's the book. That's a that's a great resource. And just the the the, the final two things, just um. In terms of books and resources, Danny, uh, and you, you did a great podcast there, kind of around New Year's, giving your top resources. And um, I remember you, you spoke about one great book. Um, but I'm gonna ask you now to give give your top resources to the listeners in terms of anything, books and podcasts and courses and whatnot. But I think there there was one that, that by uh, second name Robert Piercing Pier, or Pier, was it Pier? Uh, Robert Piercing. Piercing, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Inquiry yeah. into Values. You, you were saying that's a great book. Uh, I actually have it in my cart, uh, and you were saying it's a great book about how to think as well. And yeah, that, that's a phenomenal book. Um, it just generally it's a it's really cleverly put together. It's really really engaging book. Um, and then there is some like mention of, of different stuff with science and critical thinking mm. and and thinking through problems and, and but a lot of it just applies to a general philosophy on life and um, so that's a phenomenal book um, in terms of if people are looking at like training and nutrition if they, they just want to get the kind of key fundamental pieces then I'd have to say just start with uh, Eric Helms's two recent books they brought out so the muscle and strength pyramids he has one for training one for nutrition like if I've said to people already, like if I'd read that when I was like 16 years old, I'd be in a much better place now. I think, yeah. and just listen to that and that only. So that has all the key fundamentals of basically what we discussed earlier with the hierarchy is in the nutrition book, and he does the same for training. Um, that's a, a great book. Uh, similar to that, you have, I would say, uh, Mike Isertel's The Renaissance Diet, yeah. uh, Greg Knuckles' The Art and Science of Lifting. Um, they'd be the kind of general ones to start off with, with training and nutrition, I think. Yeah, they're great. Um, I'd, I'd add the, the scientific principles of strength training too. It's fantastic. And I'm, I'm actually oh. I'm halfway through Helms's training book as well. And so with all the other resources there, absolutely, they're, they're just excellent. Yeah, perfect. And then, then if people are kind of past that level and want to dive deeper into stuff, then literally just go and buy a, a physiology textbook um, and just read and study with that. Um, and then outside that, just for general books that have nothing to do with training and nutrition, uh, got got through a lot in the last year. Um, like I mentioned, maybe Zenon, Motorcycle Maintenance, um, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan oh, Holiday. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, there's an audio book uh, that I'd advise called We Learn Nothing by Tim Crider. Wow. Uh, that's really, really good. Um what else have I listened to? Uh, Waking Up by Sam Harris is a great book. Um, I like Sam Harris. Yeah, got some really cool stuff. And there's just a list of uh, books I could probably give that that just aren't coming to mind now. Sure, like, but, uh, well, what, what you can do is you can shoot me over an email afterwards and we can stick it in the show notes, so it's not a big deal. Cool, we'll do that because uh, I've got through a lot of books and I don't want people to be missing out. In terms of um, other stuff that I generally listen to, uh, it's generally a lot of Tim Ferriss's podcasts I think are, uh, I enjoy it's funny so I heard you say that recently on your podcast yeah. and it made me go back because I was already subscribed to Tim but I hadn't listened in a while and, and I went back and 
Jesus, something like Getsy on. He's like he's had Kevin Costner on. He's had Jamie Fox. He's had yeah. uh, Edward Norton. So I listened to all those, and they were just amazing interviews. The Jamie Fox one was unreal. Yeah, Jamie Fox was definitely my favorite. That was just like he, he just a master class in in just this guy that's charismatic and and how to engage in storytelling. Just really, really good. Uh, I, I, I know Schwarzenegger's I, been on the show. Like it's insane. Yeah, Schwarzenegger on the show. I, I love in the Jamie Fox episode where. Like Jamie Fox, for people that don't know, he, he he's uh, he's African American, and, and anytime he's he's telling a story to Tim of like some white guy being racist, he go, you know, I, I came across this guy who would say he was racially challenged. <laughs> it's just so funny. Yeah, it was excellent, man. Uh, so uh, that's the sort of stuff that I spend most of my kind of spare time listening to. And uh, maybe some of your your top courses. Who I know you you've often said that um, Martin McDonald's uh, mentorship was excellent. Is there anything else out there, Danny? Yeah, so yeah, I definitely reaffirm for for Martin's mentorship. Um, so I think he, this year, I think he only has like two spots left, but that's definitely something well worth doing. Um, online courses is probably the most one of the most common emails I get from people what they recommend for people that are just generally getting into nutrition that they want to do it as some coaching or they want to do it in conjunction with their personal training then probably the precision nutrition one looks really solid mm. I haven't done it myself but I know you, you've shown me the, the textbook I've seen the materials from a few other people just the general philosophy that PN have is, is really solid yeah. um, so that's generally where I point people because there's not too much else you like the ISSN though too don't you? Sorry? The ISSN, you like them too, don't you, Jose Antonio? Yeah, the ISSN is really good resource, so even on their site, and their, um, what they do. So th- then the on the course side of things, Lauren Bannock over in uh, the UK runs the ISSN Diploma, yeah. which can, I think can now be done completely online, but also has a live component if people want to attend that. Um, and, and some of the guest lectures on that are just incredible. So like you've, you've James Morton and, and Graham Close and Craig Sale and all these like really high level researchers that are um, presenting on that. So that's another option for people who are specifically into sports nutrition. Um, and they're the kind of main ones. There's a, there's a lot of other stuff that, that I either ha- don't have experience with or just don't think is is much good so I think uh, another good resource will be Aragon's research review for some people would that be oh yeah in, in terms of like general resources uh, go definitely subscribe to Aragon's research review it's like $10 a month it's yeah. really really good um, examine.com are doing a research digest as well I think there's like maybe $25 a month which is is pretty good um, science driven nutrition Brad Dieter he, he does a uh, monthly magazine subscription as well totally. so they're, they're stuff that kind of keep you on top of most of the research and, and see how to evaluate information so yeah and uh, uh, finally Danny you are you are running your annual Sigma Nutrition Seminar in Dublin in April of this year so do you maybe want to give the listeners details about that because uh, that's definitely one I, as I said to you already like I'm really looking forward to that because the, the, the previous one you had I was in America and I was like fuck I'm going to miss that so I'm yeah. looking forward to being there this year yeah so it's going down on April 9th and 10th and it's going to be in uh, UCD um, so it should be a pretty big event it's going to be run over two days and it's really just a collection of uh, presentations and lectures um, that I'll be doing on 
various topics that people tend to be most engaged in. So there was, it, we ran a weekend last August, um, so it's going to be completely new material from that. So um, it, it's going to be basically brand new stuff that I've been looking into, stuff that I've been thinking is, for me, has been some of the most interesting areas of nutrition. Uh, I spent the last number of months getting all the research together for it. So really looking forward to it. Um, the details of, of, of the full agenda for the two days, all the topics we'll cover, um, how to get a place on that are all on the website. So just on sigmanutrition.com, you'll see in, in the uh, menu bar that you can just click for the seminar um, and all that stuff is listed up there. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a couple of days of really good information, but I think more so there's also looking at the current attendees already signed up there are some really really cool people uh, in the fitness industry going to be there um, some people are really really uh, at, at the high end of things and, and people are just kind of emerging into it so it'll be a great place to just to get to know and hang out with with other people that are in the fitness industry here um, and uh, hopefully that, that helps people and um, so yeah just go to the website and, and look it up and if it's for you you'll you'll know pretty soon once you read through it if it's for you um, and you'll you'll probably know immediately, and uh, so if so, then I'm looking forward to seeing people in April. Again, we'll we'll make sure to have that link for the seminar in the show notes, so people can just find it right there and, and sign up. So, Danny, that's that's it for today. Thanks so much for for uh, coming on this morning. Just for people that that obviously be listening to this, we started this podcast at eight thirty in the morning. Two of us were up nice and early, so we uh, we just said, "Feck it, we'll, we'll bang this podcast out now." So, Dan, thanks a million. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's uh, a pleasure. Yeah, we should just obviously stick online there while I just wrap this up. So, guys, an absolutely, you know, 90 minutes of jam-packed information from Danny Lennon, the man himself. Be sure that if you're not, for whatever reason, signed up to Sigma Nutrition as a subscriber on iTunes or Stitcher or any sort of Android Android device, make sure you, uh, device, make sure you do that. And likewise with, uh, with my own podcast here. So, guys, thanks for listening. Take care, stay strong, and I will talk to you all very soon. Mm-hmm.